Hi, this is Allison Sheridan of the No Silicast Podcast, hosted at podfeet.com, a technology geek podcast with an ever so slight Apple bias. Today is Sunday, June 16th, 2019, and this is show number 736. Well, a happy Father's Day to everybody out there. I just gave uh, Steve his Father's Day shirt in front of the live audience. It was kind of fun. It's, um, I think it's pretty clever. It's a, a SpaceX shirt. So they named the drone ships that they land the uh, the rockets on, uh, they they give them names. And one of them is called, Of Course I Still Love You. So all it is is a the target that you can see on the top of the drone ship. And it says, Of Course I Still Love You on that. But anyway, it was kind of fun because I got to sh- give it to him on the air. So everybody got a big old kick out of that. I know NASA nut John probably got a, had a lot of fun with that. Well, this week I was on the actual radio for my very first time. Sure, it was a college station in Cincinnati, but it was radio. Rich Straffolino interviewed me on the weekly tech news hour about WWDC. You can listen to the recording of the show at weeklytechnewshour.tumblr.com or you can subscribe to the Weekly Tech News Hour in your podcatcher of choice. I had a really good time with Rich. We had a blast together, and I sure hope to do more with him. In Chit Chat Across the Pond this week, Barb Bouchatz is back with Programming by Stealth, Installment 80, where he, ins- where he successfully explains the concept of JavaScript promise chains. It's a really brain-tangly concept, but when you're done listening, you'll know how to chain promises together, you'll understand what data passes through, And you'll understand why he says, don't have unhandled rejections. It's just not nice. You can find this episode, your podcatcher of choice, under Chit Chat Across the Pond or under Programming by Stealth. As always, you can listen at podfeed.com and find the link to Bart's awesome tutorial show notes. In just a little over a week, Steve and I are going on another big adventure, this time to Chile to see yet another total eclipse. Wait, 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 wait. Uh, watching the uh, women soccer team from the United States play Chile, I learned it's Chile, not Chile. Maybe I'll start spelling it right if I keep saying it correctly. Chile. Anyway, while we're in Chile, you know the Nosilicast will not miss a beat. We are not going to break our 14-year streak. That's because Alistair Jenks and Bart Bouchatz have agreed to each host a show for you. Bart will be up first, publishing a show around June 30th, and Alistair's show will be the 6th or 7th of July, depending on your time zone. He usually does it a day early. In years past, as they've helped out the show, I've put out the call for listener reviews, and you guys have stepped up and lent a hand. I am asking for that help yet again. Making an audio recording for the show has only gotten easier over time. First, start with a good idea of something to review. It could be software, it could be hardware, it could be a gadget, um, could be even an opinion on some technical thing that would be fun to hear about. Next, get your thoughts together, maybe in an outline, or if you want to do a full script for the show notes, that's great too. A recording of about three to five minutes long seems to be a sweet spot for listener reviews. When you're ready to record, the mic on your phone is probably good enough to get a good, clean recording. Later in the show, you'll hear some examples that will submit that idea. Heck, you can even use an Apple Watch using Just Press Record, like Tom did for the review that you're going to hear in this show. Of course, if you have a big girl or big boy mic, that's even better. When you're done with your masterpiece, send them to podcasting at bartificer.net or zcarge at me.com. And trust me, that is in the show notes. Anyway, it depends on when you get it done. Alistair's a little bit uh, more prepared already. Bart could certainly use the help. If you send it to both, uh, they'll be able to do paper, scissors, rocks on deciding who can get to use it. 
You could also email them to me at allisonofpodfeet.com. But after June 25th, I'm not sure how many internets I'm going to have while I'm in Chile. I really hope you'll help the guys out to make their job easier standing into the Podfeet shoes. Let's not break that 14-year streak. One more thing, because I won't be here, Programming by Stealth will be on a hiatus, and so we're going to miss one show in the middle. Instead, you're going to get three Chit Chat Across the Pond light episodes in a row. I have a couple of episodes in the can ready to release while I'm gone. Not exactly sure which ones are going to come out when, but they're all fantastic, and I think that you will enjoy them. I'm starting to feel like applications for the Mac never surprise me anymore. Seems that in a few minutes, you can pretty much figure them out because they tend to work all pretty much the same. Once in a blue moon, though, you find an app that is a completely new approach and a unique interface that is just delightful. I have found just such an app. The app is called Solver, S-O-U-L-V-E-R, from solver.app. The tagline for Solver is that it's a smart notepad with a built-in calculator. That is a technically correct description of the app, but it sure doesn't capture the beauty and uniqueness of the app. I'm going to see if I can capture it in my own words as I go through Solver for you. First of all, Solver 3 for Mac is $19.95 US from now till June 30th, at which point the price will go up to $29.95. There's also an iOS version of Solver 2 for $2.99 in the App Store, but I haven't yet tested out that version. Solver opens up with a a left sidebar, which you can collapse, where you're going to keep all of your notes. You can name them, create folders using a little plus button in the bottom left, and drag your note sheets around to organize them in those folders. That pretty much works like any note-taking app. But the center panel is where the real beauty comes into play. Imagine you've gone on a business trip and you want to capture your expenses. You drove to the airport and expect to be reimbursed for your mileage. You went to a dinner with colleagues on the trip, so you need to split the cost, including tip. And you had to pay for the conference you attended on a per-day basis. In order to do these calculations, you could pull out the glorious program that is Excel or use the pretend spreadsheet program numbers. But what if you could write in human terms instead of complex equations and create a beautiful expense report when you're done? In Solver, you write in human language. For example, to calculate your mileage reimbursement at the U.S. government's standard rate of 54 cents per mile, in Solver, you would simply write, drove to the airport 17 miles times 54 cents per mile. In the right column, you'll see printed $9.18, all done in human language. But wait, you drove home too. Instead of going in and editing numbers in a tiny cell, you just write times two at the end of the line and you'll see a new total in the right column of $18.36. By the way, you can type in uh, like a star two and it'll convert it into X two for times two. But later on, you're going to look at that line and you're going to wonder, why did I write times two? Solver allows comments, so you can simply use two forward slashes and write whatever you want. You can even use numbers in your comments and Solver will ignore those. You can also define variables. In our driving example, if I write government reimbursement equals 54 cents per mile, I can now use that as a variable in my calculation on mileage costs. I want to take a break from the concepts of using Solver and talk about how pretty it is, though. When you define a variable simply by writing a word or words and writing equals after them, the variable name turns bright green. Everywhere you use that variable, it will also be bright green. All numbers turn bright blue, showing Solver has identified them as numbers. Any numbers in your comments will not turn bright blue because Solver ignores numbers and comments. All units, such as 
per mile, or dollar symbol, turn bright pink. These changes of color have two effects. Most importantly, it allows you to see at a glance how your calculations are being interpreted. But almost as important, it makes the app visually very pleasing. It's not boring, it's colorful. All right, back to math, because I know David Roth wants us to. When I was working on the example of a meal split three ways with a tip added, I wasn't able to come up with a natural language way of writing it all on one line. In Solver's great help files, they say that you can simply write plus 20%, and it should calculate that as though you've said times 1.2. But in my sentences, I couldn't get that to work if I put it all together on one line. I tried saying dinner at the Ritz, $326 plus 20% tip divided by three, and a few other methods, but I couldn't get that to work. I was able to put in each line separately, but that kind of disappointed me. I wanted to do it all in one line. I mentioned early on that you can see the running total in the right-hand column. If you hover over any of the numbers, you'll see three little icons. The first allows you to copy the number. The second is much more interesting. It allows you to create a subtotal of the numbers above it. At the bottom right, you'll see a grand total, and it respects these subtotals. The grand total would be the total of all the subtotals. You can also create a subtotal by using Command-T. Solver makes this pretty, too, by drawing a thin underline and then making the subtotal bold. If you've got a mixture of units in the numbers in your right-hand column, you can't use the subtotal function anywhere on that column. And the grand total stays blank because it doesn't know how to add something like 54 cents per mile and then dollars and the other things. It just can't combine those numbers. It doesn't know what to do. Kind of a pity, really, because I like the, sub the total and the subtotals, but you can understand why I can't. I thought maybe the problem I had was I had this variable in the middle of my, my list of numbers, and maybe that's uh, why I couldn't do a subtotal above it. So I tried dragging the variable down to the bottom, but that calls, caused Solver to crash. So I'll not do that again. Anyway, logically, it didn't make any sense to put it down there anyway. Variables have to be declared before they can be used. Everybody knows that. I should mention right now, I want to say right now that uh, Zach, the developer, is extremely responsive. I sent him a couple of crashes that I had, and he's getting right on them. So don't worry about that little crash I saw. I'm sure Zach will get that done quickly. Fixed quickly, I should say. Well, the third little pop-up icon when you hover over a number in the right-hand column is to round the value. The pop-up showed a slider with the default value of 10 dp for the number of decimal points. When I moved the slider on my 54 cents per mile down to 1 dp, it changed to 0.5, uh, 50 cents per mile, 0.5, and at 0 dp, it showed $1 per mile, which makes perfect sense. Going above the number of significant digits I'd entered did not increase the number of shown digits, which is a good thing. You don't ever want to imply that a measured value is more accurate than it really is. Rounding works on both entered values and calculated values, but oddly, it does not work on pure monetary values. I uh, entered dollars and cents and tried to round down to just dollars, but the little DP slider had no effect on that shown value. It would be nice to work on money since you're, uh, if it worked on money, since your accountant, especially your tax accountant, does not want to deal with those pennies. Trust me on that one. As you're creating your expense report, you'll notice that things are getting all jumbled together. You can add headings using a standard markdown syntax. For example, put a single hashtag in front of some text and it becomes a beautiful, bold heading. One of the great delights of Solver is that it can do math on dates. I suggested up front that the conference charges by how many days you attend. We know we were, uh, we were there from May 29th to June 2nd. 
Do you want to try to figure out how many days are in May and add the days between the two months? That is far too tedious. We can't be worried with things like that. In Solver, simply write May 29 to June 2nd, and Solver shows you that's four days in the right column. Note that it's not counting the days on both ends, so you got to keep track of how it interprets that. So we can then define a cost per day variable for the conference, and now we can multiply the two values by just dragging the four days down to the next row and writing X times R cost per day variable. I don't think I described that earlier. I meant to do that. If you need a number, you can just drag it from the right-hand column and drag it down into the notes field and start working on that. In my example at the end of each section, I created variables such as mileage total, meal total, and conference fee total. That allowed me at the end to create a grand total and use the addition of the three variables. It would be cleaner if Solver allowed me to keep some values out of the subtotals as we described and let Solver do all of this math for me without variables, but it does work and it sure looks pretty. When you're done with your work, you can export to a CSV file, a simple text file, or a Solver file. I started with the comma-separated value file so that I could look at it in my beloved Excel. It did work, but it wasn't more interesting and didn't add more value than the original Solver file. If you have to send in an Excel file, it's fine, but it's going to look a little funny because you're going to have numerical values in what looked like a description field, and you have to spend some time formatting to show where the subtotals are and such. The TXT file was not at all useful because anywhere a number was dragged from one calculation into the next, turned into a little square with a question mark in it. The totals were all there, but this file format would blow the top of your accountant's head off. I think the best way to export is to print to PDF because it maintains the colorful and informative beauty of the document. That final total I was so fond of and wished was available even with mixed number formats for some reason doesn't show on the PDF. I guess I'm not that attached to it after all. Sadly, you do lose the pretty formatting of the subtotals, such as bold and the little underlines in the printed PDF. I'm not sure why that is. While you're working in Solver, you can have multiple windows open so you can work on more than one file at the same time. That could be really handy. If you have to work in multiple currencies, Solver has you covered there too. You can take a value in USD or a variable and write in Euro after it, and the value in the right column will immediately be converted to Euro. That's very cool and could not have been easier and more intuitive. I'm kind of torn on the bottom line with Solver. As I said up front, Solver is a really beautiful way to combine taking notes with doing math. Its use of natural language will help people who don't like to do calculations in a spreadsheet. I hear those people are out there. I mean, I don't know any of them. It is inventive and it stands alone in its capabilities. I was a little frustrated with Solver at first, but the more I worked with it, the more I understood how it works. I did find those two consistent crash scenarios I mentioned, but I was able to very easily work around them, and Zach is working on fixing them. I told Zach I was going with an A- for Solver, and he said I should have given it a B+. Again, this is why I like Zach so much. He's so responsive to my questions and to the little problems I had. Solver has a free trial over at solver.app, so give it a try and see if it's for you. And don't forget, there's an iOS version as well. Hello, Allison and fellow castaways. This is Tom here. First of all, I want to ask you all to please help this great podcast by going to Patreon and supporting this podcast. Now, the reason for this message. I'm recording this using my Apple Watch Series 4 using a program called Just Press Record, which I may come back later and review for you. 
But the point of this message was to tell you why I chose the Apple Watch over the Fitbit. As Allison would say, first, the problem to be solved. I'm a person who uses a wheelchair eight to nine hours a day, or when I'm at home, crawls around his apartment, or uses a rolling desk chair to get around so I don't get sores on my knees. The Fitbit was taking every little movement I was making, and I was coming home at the end of the day with about 17,000 to 20,000 steps a day, averaging between 2,700 and 3,000 calories a day. Now, the way I understand it, every 3,500 calories you burn, you should be losing a pound. My weight has been pretty close to the same since I started. A couple pounds down here and there, but nothing drastic like it should be. So I've been questioning for the last few months, is this really working? Is this really accurate? Found a great deal on the Apple Watch on walmart.com where I work at Walmart and got a great discount on it. I've been using this for a couple of weeks and found that the exercise on it is fantastic. And in addition, the Apple Watch has a wheelchair mode, which I think is great. It tracks pushes instead of steps. Now, I'm still getting steps when my legs move during my morning workout. I do what's called elliptical workout. I have a band. I hook on myself and do my arms and my legs rolling around my apartment in that rolling chair. And when I'm home, I crawl around when I get home. And all those steps count toward my daily goal of about 10,000 steps. And I'm just about getting twelve to ten to 12,000 steps still. And I'm getting about 4,000 pushes a day, which I think is pretty accurate. And the calorie count is way lower. The calorie count is around maybe 2,000 on a good day. That's combining active and rest calories when you're sitting still. So if you're someone in a wheelchair, I think the Apple Watch is a better system for tracking your calories in your activity. Just my two cents. Thought you all might find that interesting. And thank you for listening. Wow, Tom. Thanks for uh, thanks for sending that in. That was really, really interesting. Um, I'd never thought about how you would get extra steps, quote unquote, out of a uh, Fitbit if you're in a wheelchair. That's That's pretty cool. And I cannot believe the audio coming from the Apple Watch is so great. So remember, everybody, I said you could do reviews like Tom. All he used was his Apple Watch. He could do the recording just there. So uh, an Apple Watch, an iPhone. I assume Android phones can make recordings as well. I have no proof of that, but I have no reason to believe they couldn't. Uh, So you too can make your recording sound as good as Tom. And I want to point out exactly how great Tom's review was because he was very concise. He had a message to get across. He described a problem to be solved. I should have made that the requirement. Anyway, it was a fantastic review. And also, Tom... I have to thank you for your kind comments about about becoming a patron. That was above and beyond the call of duty. But, of course, while we're on that subject, I might as well remind you of how you can become a patron like Tom. He went to podfeet.com slash Patreon, and he selected a dollar amount he wanted to pledge per show or per month. It's as easy as that. And get this, it's as easy to turn it off or change your contribution up or down at any time. I thank all of you who support the show like Tom. Well, it's that time of the week again. It's time for Security Bits with Bart Boo Shots. Howdy today, Bart. 
Hello there. This is my fourth recording in less than 36 hours. <laughs> nice. <laughs> There's some weekends I end up doing three in a, three days in a row. I think it was, it might have been two weeks ago that, that I did, um, whatchamacallit, British Tech Network and you twice and my own show. I think, oh, was, I, think I did that's four brutal. in four days. That's ridiculous, yeah. I just, well, I've recorded with you uh, for uh, Programming by Stealth, and I put two uh, chit-chat across the ponds in the can, one with uh, Dr. Marianne Gary, the crusher of dreams, and someone she refers to as Mrs. Gary, her wife, uh, Dr. Uh, Devin Polashik, who uh, studies psychopaths. So we have two in the can waiting for us. I don't know. I would love to be a fly on the wall on their dinner table. Like, doctor, (laughs) doctor, they must have amazing conversations. We have been. It's, It's a lot of fun. But yeah. we don't get to talk about psychopaths or repressed memories uh, or fake false repressed memories. We have security to talk about. We do indeed. Uh, we're going to start with a small amount of follow up. Um, thanks to a letter that was sent to Facebook by U.S. Senator Richard Blumenthal. We now know how many people's Facebook were tracking with that icky um, VPN thingy app that got them through that lost them their enterprise search for a few days. Oh, it was 187,000 users. Holy cow. 31,000 of those were in the United States. And of those, 4,300, or 4,300 in other words, were teens in the US. Wow. But that's as many users. Oh, okay. The remaining users were all in India. So I guess they only did it in two markets. Well, that's also interesting that it was sort of targeting two places, isn't it? Like, oh, they didn't do it in the EU? Why would that be? Yeah, I can't imagine if it has anything to do with having proper protection laws. <laughs> no idea. Yeah, really. So anyway, we now know we now know more. Um, it's not good news or bad news. It's just more news. So there we go. All right. So you asked me to do this security meeting. We had actually we had a bit of a chat about this because my sort of thinking is we talk about stuff when it's real instead of when it's pr- announced, and I sort of follow the same logic with Let's Talk Apple as well. I don't talk about stuff that people think might happen. I talk about stuff that has happened. And right. so, in general, I don't talk about stuff Firefox is going to introduce two versions from now. I talk about the stuff Firefox has just released, because then we can play with it. But I did break that rule for Android. Um, and so I was I didn't really know what to do about Apple's big announcement, because it is fair to say that both privacy and security featured extremely strongly in Apple's WWDC. Privacy featured more than security in the keynote, but um, I also listened to the state of the, or watched actually on, on the Apple TV app, the state of the platform keynote. The state of the union, right? And that, that there was a very strong security focus there, as well as a continued privacy focus. Um Apple are doing a lot. so And, and I did talk about this on um, on the NoSilicast last week. I talked about what I learned from the, um, from the State of the Union from a developer's perspective, why developers would want to institute this new sign-in with Apple feature that they've, uh, they've talked about. But I wanted to get your, your take on it. Yeah, and your take, yeah I, I, yeah, I didn't disagree with anything you said, by the way, just, just okay. to be clear. Good. Um, <laughs> this and. Exactly. Um, so... On the whole, I'm going to keep our powder dry on most of what Apple talked about until it comes out. One one that I do have down in suggested reading for people who want to read ahead, there there was another announcement that is as technologically cool as this, but it didn't come across in the keynote. They, they just they said it, but they didn't go into detail because 
well, I don't think regular people care about the detail, but we're not regular people. <laughs> Their Find My feature has some super well-designed crypto in it, which means that they can track everyone's device in such a way that Apple don't know who belongs to what device, but you know which devices are yours. Yeah, that'll be interesting to see how that works. Well, they have um, there. There's a there's, they have the link in the show notes is to a description, sort of a white paper that describes exactly how the cryptographic process works. Oh, okay. What what they're hashing, what they're encrypting, what you know, what key pairs they're using, how they're using them, and it's you basically take good primitive, good crypto primitives, put them together in a very clever way. And you get everyone's iPhone helping everyone else locate everyone else's iDevices. It's basically everyone's iDevices in a completely anonymous grid tracking all iDevices. So any stolen iDevice can be pinged and retrieved or any lost iDevice can be pinged and retrieved. And no one apart from the owner knows that it's their iDevice. It's it's brilliant. Wow. It's absolutely brilliant and technologically wow. very, very clever. So when that becomes real, we definitely want to talk about that. Yes. Yes. But anyway, you said that we should we should sort of leave most of it till next time, but we should talk about signing with Apple for the simple reason that it has absolutely caught everyone's imagination. Uh, everyone yeah. is talking about it, and so we should too. Right. So I, I probably shouldn't dwell a lot on the what, because you covered a lot of that last week now I think about it. So just to quickly summarize, there's going to be a, a, a centralized sign-in mechanism for logging into participating apps and websites where you will use your Apple credentials. Apple will authenticate you on behalf of the other app. So you won't be giving your Apple username and password to the app. You'll be giving your Apple username and password to Apple, who will vouch for the fact that you have proven who you are to Apple to the app. They they basically act as a middle person. That's how these services work. Now, one one important thing about uh, about that that I've, I've thought about for the last week is uh, Leo Laporte was talking about how he um, made the mistake of using Facebook as his login for a lot of things, and then he quit Facebook, and so all hmm. of a sudden he couldn't use all the, he couldn't sign into all these things. But in this case, if you narrow it to just apps, if you're using an app on your iPhone, you're not quitting. I mean, the only way you'd lose that is if you stopped using the iPhone. In which case, you don't need your Apple ID anyway. So they're, they're, those sort of kind of go hand in hand. But as they it do. becomes more prevalent in other things like web services, then that could start to get interesting. You could end up in that same bind. I think. You see, the way I see it working out is that they it will be used on the web in the context of to let you access your service while you're not on your iPhone. Well, because it has to be tied to an app. I looked at the APIs. I read, I RTFM'd because I thought this was. I thought I was going to be able to use this for stuff, but it starts. You have to create an app in your App Store account, and then you can get the keys you need for the web uh, stuff. So you can't just have, uh, you know, Allison's amazing game that she's written in programming by stealth and can't stop showing to everybody, and have the yep. sign in with Apple ID there, unless I make it an app. Unless you're making an app in the App Store, and you also can't use it for your cool web service unless you have an app to tie it to. Right, right. Okay. So, okay. So it really so, is so app you really focused. Can't be, you really can't be left out of your stuff if you got rid of your iPhone because you'd be getting rid of the apps, in which case you wouldn't need it. Right. And there's also just to say that these technologies by no means force you into only having one authentication mechanism. Um so it is oh. entirely possible for the developer to give you multiple ways of signing into the same account. Um, oh, okay. So Stack Overflow do this very well. Um, my Stack Overflow account can be signed into with GitHub or with a standalone username and password. Okay. Hmm. 
and a bunch of stuff I, I do in other contexts uh, with my work hat on, um, the same account can be logged into by multiple mechanisms. So it's entirely technologically possible. A lot of people don't, you know, a lot of apps don't bother implementing that. But and I'm not there's sure no technological reason. That you could. Yeah, it's good that okay. you can, exactly. Um, so it's basically a third-party sign-on. So Apple vouch for your identity to the operator of the app or service. And they don't just vouch your identity. They also vouch for how confident they are that you're human and not a robot, which is a nice additional touch. Right. Um, and they offer optionally. So the, the way these kind of identity providers work is that when you go to use your identity for the first time, Apple will pop up a window saying, here's what we're about to share with the app on your behalf. And it's all editable. And it's just your name and an email address. Your name you can just edit to being, so if you just, let's say you're perfectly happy to go by Al, and you don't mm-hmm. really think the app deserves to know that your surname is Sheridan, or in fact even that Al is short for Alice, and you're perfectly happy to say, yeah, I'll be Al on your service. And then you get the choice of passing through your real email address, or a per-app anonymized address. So basically Apple are making a burner address on the fly for people with just the click of a radio box, or the right. tap, I guess, of a radio box. Uh, and then the last important piece of factuality is that Apple ha- Apple say they're going to update the developer guidelines, or not guidelines, sorry. They're going to update their App Store rules so that if your app offers third-party login as an ability, you have to include Apple's, or sign in with Apple as one of the options. Now, that's been suggested by people who like to get angry um, <laughs> that, that that's not fair in some way. I'm I'm trying to figure out what way, because no one is saying that you have to use sign in with Apple. No one is saying that people have to use it. What Apple are saying is if you're going to offer people the ability to sign in with a third party, then you also have to give them this option, which is, you know, privacy conscious. If you're going to make your platform all about privacy, it's not unreasonable to say. And you must if you want to be in our app store, you have to give people a private option. Yeah, I guess so. I, I don't see it as being nefarious, but I tend to look at Apple and think, you know, it's all sunshine and roses, so I, I don't <laughs> think along those lines to start with. Um, I'm not sure I go as far as sunshine and roses. They don't, you know... I do. Um, <laughs> but, I was going to say they don't poop unicorns, but okay. <laughs> yes, they do. Um, Okie dokie then. I'll, I'll be the cynical <laughs> one today. Alright, I just like to, you know, sometimes when you're when you're a fangirl, you should just lean in and stop the denial. Um yeah, you know, fair but but one of the reasons I wanted to to bring that up was because um I, I was also wondering whether well people have said and I have not read this directly, but people have said that uh sign in with Apple has to be first. Is no. That anyhow, that's not true? That's half true. Okay. Or it's a mis it, it, it no. Uh, okay. So what Apple haven't released the actual rules. What they have released is the UI guidelines, and the UI guidelines suggest putting it at the top of the list, and they say that you definitely shouldn't have to scroll to find it, and it definitely shouldn't be smaller than the others. Okay. In other words, you can't hide it. Okay. And they suggest putting it first, but that's their well, guideline. Why would anybody not want to have it in there? I mean, what would the, what's the downside? There's a lot of upsides for the developers to not have to manage this data and not be responsible for logins. I mean, why there would is you no, want to have... There is no obvious downside for developers. That's why I don't understand why... It's people who don't understand what's going on who are getting angry, not the actual developers, because I like I listen to a few podcasts with developers, and they're not, they're not cranky. Yeah, I mean, it makes their life easier. 
not harder. You were at WWDC. I don't need to tell you how developers feel. You were literally surrounded by them. Were they cranky? Yeah. No, no, they weren't at all. And uh, I didn't talk to a lot of people directly about this specific thing, but the reaction in the audience was good. You know, when Apple said, mm-hmm. here's why it's better for you as a developer. And the big thing was, you don't have to manage IDs. You don't have to manage passwords. You don't have to manage, manage password resets. You're not responsible for the security of that. That's, right. you that's can, all good points, right? You can't lose data you don't have in a breach. Right, right. And so another you're not, you're not responsible for it. It's- your chances of retention of the of the uh, user is high. I mean, I, how many times have you gotten an app and you open it up and it wants you to create a login and you go, Ugh, I don't even know if I many. want this. Oh, yeah. The, usually my result is hit the home button or hit the swipe up on my new iPhone, press and hold till the icons wiggle, hit the X, delete data, yes. Moving on. Yep. Moving Unless on. Unless you were yeah. positive you wanted it. Yeah. It, like I mean, the... the, the I don't know what it is about recipe apps, but they all seem to want to to, to glum onto you forever. And I just want to know how to make a rutabaga taste good. So, <laughs> Yumly and New York Times food, they have been on my phone for five minutes flat and then been booted off. <laughs> and if I had this Apple thing, actually, they wouldn't be gone because I would have just gone, user burner address, first name only, let me in. Yeah, yeah. And I would have been in in seconds, yeah. So... A little bit of background I thought might be helpful to this conversation. So, the right, the problem, it has been a long time that we have known that it is a problem that we have too many usernames and passwords. That is not mm-hmm. a new problem. That is an old problem. And the first attempt at tackling that problem was something called OpenID. Right, and OpenID is that. run by a charitable foundation. And the theory is that they, as, as a non-interested party, would be perfect to be your middle person for all these kind of logins. The thing is, and that's part they of your got freebie. utterly... You're, that's part of your freebie thing, right? A, a charitable institution is a great one to have, have be in charge of yeah. something. Exactly, which is why Let's Encrypt is so beloved to me. But they were completely gazumped by the big media company, or the big social media companies who made their own competing standard called OAuth. Um, it was actually Twitter pioneered at first because they were at that time the biggest, which is kind of mm. interesting. Yeah. Um, but anyway, the OLS basically came in and completely stole OpenID's lunch, like totally and utterly. Oh, so now, went. pardon? That's where they went. I remember sitting back going, wait a minute, didn't we have that OAuth thing? Where did that go? OpenID, you mean? Oh, sorry, OpenID, right. I checked their website. They still think they exist and they seem oh. to still think they're relevant. Okay. <laughs> No one has told them. <laughs> but, and that's how we ended up with these Facebook buttons and these Twitter buttons and these Yahoo button. Well, I haven't seen a Yahoo button in ages, but they were in that game for a while. Um, and I think a lot of the ways they got around the web was by incentivizing website owners to send all that data back to them because that's the kind of thing they do. They pay people to send them data. So that probably helped them to beat out OpenID. Right. So we're in this world where we still have this problem, but we now have the choice between convenience and giving up our privacy, and that's not a particularly nice choice to be in. So a lot of us have decided to solve the problem with a password manager, which is fine for, you know, our people, but with the best will in the world, a lot of people still struggle with that. And so they end up sort of settling for the, oh, I'll just use Facebook. And now, by Apple doing this, it really changes the game because now the choice isn't convenience and no privacy or 
no convenience. The choice is now be an Apple customer and pay Apple money and then have this as an extra convenience along with all the other conveniences you get from having, you know, from being a paying customer of Apple's. So it's, it's, it has changed the landscape a lot, which I think is very interesting. It, they are markedly different to all the other players in this game, which is, I think, very important to note. Because they're uh, ostensibly doing this for reasons of increasing your privacy. They're doing it for reasons of selling more services and products through okay. their new vision of, hang on a second, people are happy to pay for a service that's private. Right. It's this massive right. untapped market of people who actually care enough about privacy to open their wallet. Now, in this case, you it's indirect, right? They're not selling single sign-in. They're selling iPhones, Apple Music, all those other things. And as an Apple... No, you you don't have an iPhone unless you paid Apple money. Right, yeah. I was trying to think of a scenario where you'd be using an app that... W- well, you could... Uh, you could have Android and have... Um, but be paying for Google for Apple Music, but in which case you're, right, you're giving Apple money. Yeah, yeah. You just haven't bought hardware, is all. Yeah, and I did very specifically say software and products because Apple is very much in this. Sorry, services and products because Apple is very much starting to focus on services. And right. I've seen some people describe this as Apple's first foray into privacy as a service, which oh. is an interesting way of looking at it. They've it's got a new term ad- they just made up, but I think it's interesting. I saw an ad. Uh, I know this is a derail, and I told you no derailing today, but I'm going to anyway. Um, okay, there's a spectacular show. Apple ad out right now. Um, it All it is, is a woman sitting in a chair at a salon, maybe getting a pedicure or something along those lines. And right. all she's doing is looking at her phone and laughing. And she has the okay. most infectious laugh. And she, you know, kind of ebbs and wanes and comes back and she goes up and down, up and down. At one point, she gets kind of disgusted by something. Then she starts laughing again. All it is, is her laughing. And they pan back and the thing underneath it says... Uh, Something like everyone doesn't have to be in on the joke. And then it shows an Apple logo. Instead of the uh, stem, it's got a little lock and it clicks closed and then it turns into the to the stem again. Oh, that's very nice. Yeah. So it's it's a very, very catchy ad. You have to really think about it to figure out why that has anything to do with security. So I'm not sure it actually works, but I still thought it was interesting. That's selling privacy as a service right there. It is. You're right. So. This whole idea of having a central identity provider, there are actually environments in which it is really common, even though it isn't something that's worked out well for us in the in the sort of the the mainstream world. There are places where it is excruciatingly popular. The corporate world is full of these single sign-ons because you take your corporate directory and you use that as your one thing to log into all of your modern cloud services. So if you if you're on the modern Microsoft train, it means that your Active Directory isn't something that exists on your campus anymore. It's something that exists in the cloud through Azure Active Directory. And you then buy cloud services from different providers all over the planet and you log into those cloud services using your Azure Active Directory as your central authority, as your okay. central as your identity provider, as your IDP as, as we'd call it in the industry. You'll also find that all over the educational sector. Um, Lots and lots of schools and universities have Office 365 or G Suite, and one of the services you get is that you get to have your your university directory in the cloud, therefore you can use it to log in to services. And in fact, there's even education-specific services like this. Um, 
EduGain is an international collaboration where the, the, the different universities' identity providers are federated into one giant big identity provider. So you can get a book out of a library in another university using the identity hosted by your identity provider in your university. Oh, interesting. Uh, which is really handy. So EduGain is Europe-wide. It's, it's a Geont project. And Ireland has a version of it called EduGate, which is among the Irish universities. It allows us to get e-journals and all these kind of things using our university identity. So it's, again, it's, it's login with Maynooth University, basically, is what we would call it if we gave it a name. So it's ubiquitous in these kind of markets. And the other one I adore, 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 and this is completely international. There's something called EduRoam, where you can go onto Wi-Fi in any participating educational institution of any kind anywhere on planet Earth, and you authenticate to that Wi-Fi with your credentials from your home institution via identity oh, providers. Oh, interesting. So you set your phone up once with your credentials from your home institution, and you wander around the planet getting free Wi-Fi every time you come in anywhere near an educational institution. And there's a lot of them around. Huh. I, get, I get random really good Wi-Fi all over the place, because you forget that like universities have outreach offices and city centres and things. <laughs> yeah, it's great. Anyway, so... These things are actually really common identity providers in corporate and education environments. And the reason is because there's someone to trust. If you are an employee of, you know, Bartivis or Widgets or whatever, and Bartivis or Widgets provide a central identity, then of course you're going to use it to authenticate yourself to the various services that Bartivis or Widgets ask you to use as part of your job. Or if you're studying right. at Bartivis or U and you need to log into the learning environment, well, of course you're going to use the identity provided by Bartivis or you central identity provider to log into that service they're providing you. So there's no trust issue because, you know, the owner of the directory is someone whom you have a reason to trust. You work for them or you're paying them to be their student. You know, we should and, put programming by stealth and, and uh, taming the terminal inside Bartivis or you. <laughs> yes, the two courses we offer. <laughs> so... The reason it works in those environments is because you can have this trust. And the reason we're having the problem with all of these login with blah, blah, blah buttons is because there's a trust problem, because there's incentives that are misaligned. So I'm going to do my stuck record trick here. <laughs> um, so, the, the, right. An identity provider cannot do its work without knowing who you are, because its job is to authenticate you. And without knowing where you're going, because its job is to broker the relationship between you and where you're trying to log into. It is impossible for an identity provider not to know who you are and where you're going. That is, it's like you can't have a doctor who doesn't know what, you know, what ails you. Otherwise, you're not your doctor. You can't have a mechanic who doesn't know what's under the bonnet of your car. Sorry, the trunk, of the hood of your car. Because they can't do their job without knowing. It is intrinsic to the act of being an identity provider that you know who is using what. So you ha hang on, uh, do they intrinsically know your password? Uh, no, no, they don't okay. know your password because they okay. will only store a hash of your password. That, that's how passwords work. No okay. one knows your password. Like if you, if you use, if you create a standalone account with some third party app, they shouldn't know your password either. They should okay. only be able to verify it. Just getting it said directly. Okay. But they will know who you are because you have a relationship with them and they're vouching for your identity. Right. That's their job, is to vouch for your identity to the people you need it vouched to. Mm -hmm. 
And so, they know where you're going because they have to identify or they have to authenticate you where you're going. Yeah, That's exactly. You are literally there. saying, dear site I'm trying to go to, this guy over here can prove I am who I say I am. Will you please negotiate with them to come to an agreement that I am who I say I am? So that the, their job is to mediate your is to mediate that relationship. They have to know that it is impossible no for an entity provider. It. Yeah, it's completely intrinsic to the job. So you must trust your identity provider because otherwise you can't use it. So this thing gets us to my stuck record bit of follow the money. <laughs> and it all comes down to business models. And if the business model is pushing the provider in the same direction you want to go, in other words, it, their interests and your interests are aligned, then you're in a position where trust is easy. If they're misaligned, trust is hard. And if they're at cross purposes, I don't see how you can trust. And that's why Apple is so different here. Facebook, Google and Twitter, they all share a business model, which is basically we give away free stuff to our users so that we can build up profiles that we can use to sell our users' attention to our customers who are the advertisers. And notice they don't sell your data because that would completely undermine their business model. They sell your attention. And the reason they're able to make that attention valuable is because they have these detailed profiles so that it is possible for a, for an advertiser to say, I want to show this ad to 500 people who live in Ireland who are age 35 and who like bicycles. So, so their business model entirely incentivizes them to know as much about all of their users as they can so that they can have a better product for their customers. Apple make money by selling you things and services. You, the user, are the customer. So keeping you happy is how Apple keep the money flowing. So that means that they're aligned with you much more closely than the other three big ones are. One of the reasons, uh, or one of the ways I like to back you up on what you're saying is you would make the same statement about Microsoft Microsoft, as you're making about Apple right now. If Microsoft had a sign-in with Microsoft, it would be the same answer, right? It, yes, and in fact, I have already sort of given that answer because if you're using Azure Active Directory, they don't call it sign-in with Microsoft and it's not sign-in with any Microsoft account. It's sign-in with the corporate account that Microsoft are hosting. But it is Microsoft's infrastructure that I trust every single day when I use Azure Active Directory to sign into 20 million things. Okay, I don't think I'm using Active Directory. You're probably not, no, because you don't have a corporate account with them, so you don't right. have that. Right, so, but, but I'm uh, saying if for the public, if they ah, made yes. a, a button just as Facebook has and Google has and Twitter has and now Apple, you would put Apple or you would put Microsoft over in the Apple camp, not in the Facebook, Google, Twitter camp, correct? As far as the it trust. It would depend, actually, because if it was... A, see, Microsoft straddled the boundary a bit because their Gmail stuff is not... If you're, like, if you're a paying Office 365 customer, then they're entirely incentivized on your side because you're buying a service from them. But if you're using Hotmail, or whatever they're calling it this weather, then that's oh, actually that's they're actually different. in the other side of the camp for that product. Oh, that's interesting. So, yeah, Microsoft are an interesting company because under Barmer, they tried to out-Google Google for a while. And they haven't shed all of that. So Bing, for instance, I don't, I don't, I don't, you know, the the Bing branch of Microsoft, I don't say nice things about. Hmm. But thankfully, they don't mix and match. So 
the reason yeah. I get extra cranky at Google is because if I pay them to be a G Suite customer, they still use my email to advertise at me. It's like, but I'm paying you. How do you know that? But they say it in their terms of service that because oh, okay. we evaluated all the different possibilities when we were choosing which provider to go to. It, I can't really say where we were doing this evaluation, but okay. they they don't they don't have the firewall because they, they just decided not to. They, right, and okay. I don't like people who okay. double dip. It's like it's what makes me cranky about USISPs where they charge you an arm and a leg for internet that isn't great, and then they say they need to spy on you to monetize you as well. It's like, hang on a second. <laughs> How many ways do I pay for this? Right, right. Sorry. Okay, now, so I, now I, I was just, yeah, I've really, I, I grabbed your soapbox and I put it up three levels higher by saying that. But I, but I did want to separate the Apple fandom from the reason behind, you know, that to, to back up your logic is that those things that Microsoft sells you, those yeah. are more trustworthy in this way. Okay. Yeah. And I'm a fan of Apple because they fit my view of the world. I'm, my view of the world isn't the result of the fact that I like Apple. It is the other way around, which is kind of important. See, mine is, the, I would say the fact that they align with my view of the world is a really happy byproduct. But I, it's the stuff. It's the toys that make me happy. I didn't come to, I didn't discover Apple until really quite late in my tech life. I was, I was, I was a happy Microsoft user until uh, Windows XP. Mm. Oh, and Windows- m- mis- Mistake Edition. Windows yeah. ME. Oh, Remember, yeah. Windows Vista was my first uh, Windows, so, yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I believe my favorite anyway. phrase was, people choose this? Anyway. Yes. All right. So, we need to be clear here that there is no universal right answer because you always pay. Whether you use sign-in with Apple, whether you sign-in with Facebook, whether you sign-in with Google, you always pay. The only choice you have is how you pay and who you pay. Basically, you open your wallet to buy things and services from Apple, and then you get to use sign in with Apple, or you open your privacy or your kimono, I guess. I don't know quite sure how to phrase that. Basically, you pay with your privacy. Your back door. Yeah, you, you pay with your privacy or you pay with your wallet, but you are paying. And depending on how you feel for a start if you're happy to just use a password manager well maybe you don't want to use any third party to sign you into things because even that is your handing control you're choosing to trust and maybe the choice for you is trust no one don't choose to trust and then the second question of choosing who to trust doesn't even enter into it but if you decide that you do want the very obvious convenience of these single sign-in services well, then you have a second decision to make. So first decision, I want this single sign-in stuff. This is nice and convenient. Then your second question is, how do I personally balance the two choices? Do I pay financially or do I pay with my privacy? Which do I personally value more? And I'm never going to say that one is right and one is wrong. It's what do you care about? I know what I think. And I think quite strongly that I would rather pay with my wallet than with my privacy, which is why I am delighted this exists. But I don't think you're wrong if you make the other decision, as long as you've made a decision. And a as opposed to just doing it by educated default. Educated decision, yeah. I only see one downside to sign in with Apple, and that is that I will still have to go to my password manager and tell myself, you used sign in with Apple for this. Because otherwise I'm going to open up the app and I'm going to sit there going, no idea, what did I do? You know? 
Yeah, and it'll only happen, I think, because the app will remember you, so it will only happen when you get a new device. Well, Which means you won't have know. done it for I, ages. No, 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 no. That, that is so not true, Bart. My bank changes its terms of service. They make you re-sign into the app. I mean, there's lots of apps make you sign in again. Oh, I don't think that's how this is supposed to work. And the other thing is, it's also integrated with Keychain, so I think it should actually tell you that you have signed in with Apple for this app. So I think your problem is gone. Um, that's certainly what the... Uh, if, oh, if which podcast was that? It was one of the podcasts with developers who'd been to the keynote on on, on, on covered signing with Apple, but apparently there is keychain integration. Mm. So basically your phone will know that you sign in with Apple to this app. Yeah, that that could help. That, that, well, that, I mean, that would save me having me to remember. Sign it again, they'll, they'll, they'll make me do it. It's a way of but making It should just be attention. a face ID, though. No, no. Face ID has been disabled. You are, you have to go read these terms and conditions, and now you can sign in again. That happens all the time on banking apps to me. Two different ones, I but think. They're not using sign in with Apple because it doesn't exist I know. yet. I know. I'm just saying. We I shall see. We shall see. I, 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 I hope you're right, but I don't uh, underestimate their ability to find ways to annoy me. <laughs> you okay, can't argue with that. Um, the last thing I have on my show notes is just to sort of to think about how this affects different people involved. So you have covered the first point I made in my show notes very well last week. For developers, this is just a win-win-win. I've read the docs. The API is stunningly straightforward. This is so this is so easy to do. And if I don't have to worry about safely storing passwords, if I don't have to worry about verifying that you are a human, if I don't have to worry about managing authentication and hashing passwords correctly and using proper derivated hashing algorithms and all this kind of stuff, I'm game with that. And if there's going to be less friction in getting you into my app, I'm game with that too. So from a, from a developer point of view, this is just wins. Um, if you're already using third-party logins, then you have to do a little bit of work. So basically, if you're starting from scratch and you just want people to log into your app, this is really easy. If you already have an app and it's already using the Facebook and the Google buttons, if you're being paid by Facebook and Google to gather data and give it to Facebook and Google, you may be cranky about having to add a privacy option because oh, that technically is going to... think about that, Yeah. So you actually stand to potentially lose a little bit of revenue by being pro-privacy. So that might be a little hairy. Uh, from a user point of view, if you decide that you want a frictionless, privacy-respecting way of single sign-on, I don't see how you lose. Uh, from Apple's point of view, they get to keep selling privacy as the reason they're going to sell you software or services, software and hardware. So it just ties into their current marketing strategy. So it makes perfect sense for Apple to do this. Um, and actually, this has extremely little effect on Facebook or Google because they're not third parties to themselves. So you won't have to use Facebook. Do not have to add a sign in with Apple button to the Facebook app because Facebook signing in with Facebook is first party, not third party. Oh, okay. So it really doesn't affect Facebook and Google. They can continue to just log you in with their own account. So, you know, for them, it's not really that big of a deal, which is probably why Google were like, yeah, we hope uh, you link me to another copy of the the story. I've seen it in a few different places. One of the Google guys basically said, yeah, I'd much rather people you sign in with Apple than passwords. Well, he he was a little more specific than that. He said, it is a better thing for the internet. 
for people to use uh, something like sign in with Apple. So I'm glad that Apple is doing that. Now, here's all the reasons ours is better. He was the he was the login oh, guy sure. for, for Google. But he said, but I'm I'm glad they're doing this because this is better for the Internet. So if a competitor in the space who will lose something by them being successful at this says that, that says this is better for the Internet, I think. Yeah, and Google are interesting because they, well, it's not the only motivation they have. There is there is still an element within Google who who actually try to be good netizens, which is something I have never felt from Facebook. I have never got the impression that Facebook mm-hmm. want to be good netizens. But Google are single-handedly responsible for really driving forward the adoption of HTTPS by simply saying, we will rank HTTPS sites higher because the whole internet should be HTTPS because mm-hmm. it will be better for the internet. The reason we have really fast DNS servers is because Google went, the web would just be better if DNS wasn't slow and buggy. Therefore, 8.8.8.8, and now there's a whole bunch of competitors to them offering at least that fast because they've now set the bar. So Google do, from time to time, do things genuinely just to be good netizens. They do all sorts of other stuff too, but they are also interested in being good netizens from time to time. And I like that about them. And this is an example of that. Right. A side note, I think we should say, there's more trust here than you may realize because anonymous email forwarding also involves trust because the email goes to the provider of the anonymous email address who then forwards it to your real email address and they have to to have, the email has to flow through Apple for them to be able to forward you the email. It physically can't work any other way. It's, you know, the mechanic who has to lift up the hood of your car. So if you're choosing to use Apple's anonymized per app emails, you you are choosing to trust Apple. Just to be clear on this, you are choosing to trust Apple when you do this. In exchange for not having to make your own burner addresses for every single app you use, which is a giant big pain in the you-know-what. And then the last thing I have on the show is because it's made me so cranky, the amount of podcasts where the argument is laid out and the token Android user on the other side, the literally only thing they can come up with is, yeah, but someday Apple could just do a U-turn and start selling everyone's data to advertisers. Okay. Apple could random evil thing someday in the future. Does not cut any mustard with me <laughs> at all. Yeah, right. Facebook could turn around and be trustworthy too. I also don't believe that. <laughs> Companies do their best not to harm their own interests. So unless you can explain to me what would incentivize Apple to do a complete U-turn on their entire business model, which is working really well for them? I'm just, it's just conspiratorial nonsense to me, if if, if your argument is, but they could. Well, so, and if they did, then this would change. But it isn't. Yeah. So it isn't. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, the other obvious thing is, so I shouldn't trust Apple because right now they're well incentivized to do the right thing. I should instead use Google or Facebook, who right now are really badly incentivized and are doing the wrong thing. So I should definitely give up my privacy now because I might, hypothetically, for some reason no one can articulate, lose it later. I should give it up immediately. Right, right. Huh. Can I sell you a bridge? (laughs) So in other words, you don't want people writing to you with that argument? No, because to me it's not an argument, it's nonsense. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I agree. Arguments I agree. are based on logic and reality and stuff. Anyway, it's my soapbox. I know I'm being unreasonable, but it just made me very cranky. It's your soapbox, Bart. You can say whatever you want on it. Fair enough. Anyway, there are links in the show notes to technical details, to UI details, because obviously people are playing with betas and things. 
uh, and to opinion pieces and also to a report on the uh, Google login chat we were mentioning earlier. And to the, uh, the video of the woman laughing. If you want to stick that in the show notes, by all means. I did. <laughs> you did. Very good. Notable security updates then. Back into normality here. Last Tuesday was Patch Tuesday. Microsoft released 88 patches for Windows Office and other products, including four bugs being actively exploited in the wild. So uh, do this one. Yeah. And Adobe patched Flash for those of you who haven't quite got the message that Flash is deprecated <laughs> and it really genuinely is about to die. Wow. Uh, Intel have released a whole bunch of new drivers and things. I, I didn't understand most of the names in these releases, apart from one. Apparently there's new firmware for Nook motherboards. I've, I've at least heard of those. Hmm. Um, Google have released the latest patches to Android, their monthly patches. So apparently there are eight critical flaws in the June 2019 patch for Android. So if your Android phone can't take that update, get a new Android phone. And if your Android phone can take that update, update your Android phone. Hmm. And finally, if you are one of our people and are running your own server, and if that server happens to be based off one of the Debian Linuxes, then you're running a mail server called Exim. Really popular mail server. About as popular to mail servers as Apache is to web servers. It's got a giganto massive security hole in it that you need to patch ASAP. Yikes. Yeah, we're okay, though, because we run CentOS and Red Hat use Postfix instead of Exum, so we're fine. Um, notable news, then. Last time we talked about Google recalling uh, security keys. Well, it's Ubico's turn. Um, similar issue, firmware bug, no way to fix it apart from giving you a new key, so they're giving everyone a new key. These are um, physical fobs. They're physical hardware encryption devices yeah. with a whoopsie in their firmware. So you're yep. getting a new physical device. Um, yeah, just uh, just like it was fine for you know Google did the right thing, YubiKey or, or Yubico are doing the right thing. So th- th- there's no criticism here. It's just that happened, and they're doing it. All right. Microsoft. Now I don't understand why Microsoft have to issue this warning, but they do. Microsoft are using are using warnings are warning users not to run unpatched versions of Office because they have observed a spike in real-world attacks against a bug in Office that was patched in 2017. <laughs> Who are you people that have not been listening to me say telling you to stay patched and stay secure? So I, I wonder, guess if you have family members running, were, like, Office 2004 or something. Yeah, I mean, that could be... What about... I don't think Office 2011 is being supported either. I bet there's people running Office 2011. I guess that must be it. People running Office versions that have fallen out of support and don't see any in the need last to change time it that. Was, well, in the last time it was easy to uh, just buy the software. They've been making it harder and harder to find that. They don't want a subscription. Office hasn't done anything new in the last decade, so why not keep using it? I can see that being a logical thing people have done. Until someone explains to them that you can't use software that's out of support because it's massively dangerous. Yeah. You know, software goes stale. Software is like fish. You can't keep your fish forever. You can't keep your software forever. I guess. I just wish um, they would you, offer a standalone version for people at a reasonable price to replace it. I think there is. It's called Google Docs. <laughs> mm, yeah. Yeah, maybe. It's, it, it does. Wait, uh, wait, see previous conversation about who you want to give your data to. 
Boom. or Office three six five. To be honest, the, the, well, no, the, the that, I said of reasonable Office... price that for a standalone version, and it's I, you yeah. may still be able to buy a standalone version, but it's really hard to find. Well, I think actually, as much as I dislike Open Office or LibreOffice or whatever flavor that, it actually is more than capable for most people who would be yeah. running Office two thousand and four. I will accept that answer. Yeah. I mean, if you're using a version of Office that's so old it's not being patched, you're not in need of the latest cutting-edge features. Right. And you're already using horrible UI, because Microsoft's UI was terrible back then. I don't know, a lot um, of people hate that ribbon, Bart. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Mark me down. They've gotten better. They, 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 there's less stuff that hides and vanishes all the time to confuse me these days. They've mm. tied that. To, anyway, let's not go down that rabbit hole. Uh, YouTube have announced improved protections for kids on their platform. You must now be, if you're a child, you must be accompanied by an adult while live streaming and comments are disabled on videos featuring kids and Mm. kids will not receive recommendations for videos that show kids in risky situations. Yeah. Now, this sounds like a really good thing and it is, except turn every one of those around of what they used to do. Um, Well, actually, they used to already limit ads to kids, but they're limiting them more now. No, but they no, but they allowed commenting. There was all kinds of really creepy commenting stuff, and they would show they would show kids videos to like click the next one, click the next one, click the next one, and they could end up in really horrible places. Yeah, so they're they're undoing a wrong here. This is not forward thinking. This is fixing stupid stuff they allowed. I think they're reacting to the fact that the internet didn't turn out like they expected. You're generous today. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, but I don't think we all thought it was going to be quite the cesspool it's become. Yeah, I didn't. I suppose. I suppose. Um, Apple have also tightened the rules on advertising and tracking within apps targeted at kids. And by targeted at kids, I mean apps that have been explicitly flagged when submitted to the app store as being for kids. Therefore, they appear in the for kids section of the store. Previously, Apple banned behavioral ads. So ads based on what a user does were banned. Uh, but now, basically, all ads and all third-party analytics are banned for apps in that section of the iOS App Store. So and I, I presume the Mac follow, App Store, too. I didn't follow what that meant. So, behavioral ads are ads based on tracking. So, you used to be able to pre- present ads just not based on who was using the app and what they were doing, but just ads. Like like in a magazine. Right? And a magazine okay. doesn't track you. It just shows right. you ads. That was allowed in the kids section. What was not allowed was your your Facebook, Google style tracking you ads. They're called behavioral ads. Oh, huh. never heard it called that before. Yeah. Um, I can't remember the antonym. It's behavioral ads, and there's a word for the other normal kind of ads, but I forget it right now. So they had already limited what was allowed in terms of advertising in kids apps, but they've gone for a much much simpler rule. No, <laughs> definitely easier. Uh, Firefox 67 has come out, therefore we can talk about it, uh, and it has a whole bunch of notable security and privacy improvements, including their version of what they call advanced tracking protection. Actually, Apple might call it prevention. Do they call it protection? Anyway, they're doing cool stuff as well to stop you being tracked online. They also have a feature I really like called their Facebook sandbox, where basically they sandbox all those like buttons and stuff so they don't actually connect back to you, which is very nice of them. Um... They've updated their cloud-based password manager uh, and they've renamed it from Lockbox to Lockwise. 
So it's available on desktops as a browser plugin, and it's available on iOS and Android as a standalone app. So that means that you can get at your password you save in Firefox from your iPhone easily, which is nice, oh, or from your Android device. So if you're a cross-platform person, that makes it nicer than Apple's keychain. So, And you went a little quickly over the previous thing. So you're saying if you use the new version of Firefox and there's somebody puts a Facebook like button on that page, it's sandboxed so that it's not actually watching where you go next? I think you have to click the checkbox in the options to say turn on the Facebook sandbox. But if you do, yes. It basically throws their cookies away. So in the Facebook, if you're in a, in a tab where you have Facebook open, Facebook cookies will be respected, so you can use Facebook. But in other tabs, they're not. Oh, nice. So basically sandbox. Yeah, you can play in Facebook here, but you can't have Facebook follow you everywhere, which is a nice middle ground. And they've also made improvements to Facebook Monitor, which is their integration to the Have I Been Pwned service. Hmm. Um. Foreigners, as in non-U.S. citizens, applying for a visa to visit the U.S. now have to provide five years' worth of social media usernames on their application forms. I do want to stress that this is only usernames being requested, at least for now. There, there are rumblings in the various houses of Congress about maybe changing that, but for now it's just usernames. Nonetheless, civil liberties unions are making really quite cogent arguments against this policy, because, as they put it, it's both invasive and ineffective. So, <laughs> a that's a bad mix. Yeah. Uh, and then, interestingly, for people living in the UK, um, so what we what, what was called in the media the Snoopers Charter is officially known as the Investigatory Powers Act. And one of the things that was put in there to make it not seem so big brothery was that it came with a watchdog called the Investigatory Powers Commissioner, whose job it was to make sure the government didn't abuse their investigatory powers. Well, it turns out the Investigatory Powers Commissioner is not very happy with the British government. Hmm. Um, He has ruled that MI5, their Britain's domestic intelligence service, so I guess that's FBI equivalent, showed a, quote, historic lack of compliance with the Investigatory Powers Act, and that he was applying, quote, special measures, meaning all applications for warrants are going to be extra scrutinized because basically he doesn't trust them. Oh, wow. So, yeah. And uh, as best as I can make out, the Investigatory Powers Commissioner has to be a senior judge. So this is not some some random guy. This is, this is a very experienced person with much clout. Or so, random woman. In this particular instance... I believe I am 99% sure I checked the pronouns before I said anything. <laughs> okay. Cuz I don't make that assumption because I because lo- it, it it's not appropriate or correct a lot of the time which is nice. It's really nice when it's not correct cuz then Leo gets to say silly things. Anyway. Suggested Actually, Leo reading has many flaws but he doesn't do that one badly. The which? Uh he doesn't do that one badly I was I was saying. Maybe it's Steve and Leo just doesn't have the heart to correct him. Yeah. Yeah. Sandbox Escaper is a trans security researcher. And those two old men having that conversation, it was not good listening. Painful. Painful, painful, painful. Painful. I think Leo anyway. tries. I'm not, I'm not a Leo apologist. I just want to say that. Yeah. I'm, yeah. Yeah. I'm not a Leo hater. He just does some things from time to time that make me very cranky. Mm-hmm. 
Suggested reading, PSA's tips and advice. Uh, Interesting article from the Mac Observer. Um, Security 101. What is a threat model and how do I create one? Basically, this is a little exercise you can do to figure out what your security crown jewels are and how you should be protecting them. It's it's the kind of exercise a corporation would go through, but there's no reason you, as a regular citizen, can't do it for the stuff that matters to you. Oh, that's interesting. So it's a set of steps to go through to help analyze what you care about? Yeah, it's basically help you think about actually what is it I need to protect. and what you know Because once you know what you're trying to protect, you have a much better chance of succeeding. Yeah. And it's not difficult, but it's just a way of thinking. And it's just, you know, it's interesting. The FBI issued a big warning to people. This is, they didn't, I don't think they expressed it very well. But basically, the bottom line is correct. Just because a website says HTTPS does not mean it is secure. What it means is that you are really at the URL that the address bar says you're at. If the address bar says you're at paypoop.com and it looks like PayPal and you didn't read properly, then you are securely talking to the bad guys. And all the padlock means is that you really are talking to the bad guys. I remember you telling us about this a while ago. I, I did, actually, yeah. So the the lock just means that you're securely communicating with the address in the address bar. If that address is evil, you're securely talking to the bad guys. The The padlock is not a mark of character. It is a mark <laughs> of security to a domain name. I remember being surprised at that by that because I assumed that anybody who had been gone to the bother of getting a security certificate would have thought, well, that's going to expose me to people seeing who I am. But it doesn't some, because right. On, all right, when your address bar turns green, actually, this is okay. I wasn't planning on this conversation, but there are three types of cert. Two of them look the same. They're not interesting looking. They just look like a padlock. But the third one, your address bar turns green and you might see something like EV written on it. They're extra validation certs. To get one of those certs, you don't only have to prove ownership of the domain, you have to prove that the domain belongs to a corporate entity. And Mm. so those certificates verify the corporation and the domain. So if you go to an EV site like PayPal, you will have the padlock and it will say PayPal Inc. Because the certificate verifies both the corporation and the website and ties them together. Those certs right. cost a lot but of money, and those certs are very difficult to that. obtain. The absence of it doesn't mean anything. Correct. But check, a normal check cert is almost certainly something called domain control validation. You have to prove that you control the domain you're getting the cert for, which is why they certify that you are where you think you are. They don't say anything about the people. They certify the domain. Right. There is something called an OV cert, that's sort of a halfway house between DCV and EV, but it's pretty meaningless. It's very, very, very easy to get an OV cert. Um, you just need to answer the phone. Um, <laughs> and that's why browsers don't make them look special, because they're not really that special. Uh, there's lots of other stuff in there, a whole bunch of notable breaches. Um, and I made a new section, notable Uh-oh. IoT vulnerabilities, because I just keep coming up all the time. So... Amcrest security cameras are in deep, deep trouble this time. Apparently, they're quite popular because they're good features on paper for a cheap price. Unfortunately, no one bothered with security. Mm. So, whoops. In terms of news, I want to highlight a few. Um, 
If you're interested in what Apple talked about, Intego did a nice review on their blog of the security and privacy features that are coming in macOS, Catalina, and iOS 13. So if you don't want to wait till we talk about it when the OSs are released, there's a good summary. Um, mm-hmm. Apple are also making an interesting... Um, they're doing some interesting stuff in terms of how their iOS platform... Actually, sorry, how their platforms in general integrate with uh, mobile device management... So that you can enroll your iPhone, basically you can enroll your personal iPhone into a corporate um, management system while retaining much more of your privacy. So you basically, you can give your corporation control of only their apps and that way they can remove their data if they choose to fire you, but they don't actually have full control of your phone. And what's particularly interesting is that same technology is probably why Apple have loosened their rules on what apps can do for parental control using MDM protocols. Because by having this kind of halfway house MDM, that means that you you can have your cake and eat it. So this is a very interesting development. Oh, we'll know more as as the um, as we get closer to iOS thirteen being released. So we can't talk about it. I can't talk about any more detail. If you're curious, TechCrunch have an article, and it certainly caught my interest. So basically, it's here flagged as being, if you if you care about this, have a read that the TechCrunch article is interesting. But we'll know more when we know more. Okay. Uh, and then you asked me to put a star next to this one. The city of Burlington falls for $503,000 fishing scheme. That would be yeah, Burlington this- in Canada. Yeah, we actually got this from Stephen Getz. And the the reason this particular article made me cranky was because uh, I'm not sure if it's the title or the first line. It says something like corporate or governments are just as vulnerable to phishing as humans. No. What do you think the government's made of? It's made of humans. Humans fell for fish, a phishing scam. That is what happened. Humans had bad passwords. Humans, uh, you know, clicked the wrong link. Humans were tricked into giving up information. It is humans. That is what governments are. A stupidly <laughs> written article. It's also yes. very unfortunate and bad guys stink. Yeah, I, I believe, I, 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 I'm going on my memory here, but I believe it was a, a classic example of what is done against corporations all the time. A very carefully chosen spear phishing email made to look like it came from a vendor who the city genuinely do business with saying, we've changed our bank details, please update your standing order with us. Right. Well, yeah, and that's what they did. They, they passed along uh, half a million dollars worth of moolah to... Uh, somebody who wasn't who they thought it was. Yeah, and that is really common in the corporate world. That is more common in the corporate world because the corporate world is usually better funded than local government. Yep. Lots more stuff here in the news section. Lots more stuff. Uh, But I want to jump to opinion and analysis where I have a few things to highlight for people who want to do a bit of extra reading. A very thought-provoking essay that John Gruber on Daring Fireball pointed people to Basically, it makes the argument that we're thinking about privacy all wrong by being fixated on individual privacy, as was very important when the US Constitution was written with quill and ink. Um, In the modern world, we have a much bigger problem. The author refers to as ambient privacy. And we should start thinking about that at least as much as we think about individual privacy. Uh, I I haven't read it all yet, but the bits, you know, I'm sort of about halfway through. It's quite long. It's an essay. And I'm finding it an interesting view. Hmm. Yeah. Um, from the Department of Duh, the New York Times <laughs> did a little bit of a survey. We read 150 privacy policies. They were an incomprehensible disaster. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Did they get grant money to do that? 
<laughs> well, they're no, they're the New York Times, so I guess they got advertising clicks by me clicking on it. <laughs> right, right. Actually, I pay the NY Times, so they got subscription money from me, is what they actually got. We've read privacy policies. You won't believe what happened next. Yeah, they're awful. Um, if you're interested in the whole, how, you know, we are trusting Apple, even though we're paying them, because obviously they're managing our data on our behalf and we're trusting them to manage your data. So what is Apple's philosophy on dealing with data and what what is it that they have to know in order to be able to provide us the services they provide us with? I mean, what do Apple know is a very valid question and Axios did a really good write-up basically of, you know, there are things that Apple can not know and they work really hard not to, but there's things that Apple must know and there are things that Apple do know and it's good to know what Apple know. Um, so it's actually a really well-written article. It starts off by explaining Apple's philosophy and then going into service by service. What trust are you placing in Apple? Hmm. Um, interesting article by Rich Mogul on sclerosis. Uh, this is basically, uh, for a large extent, this is a reaction to WWDC. Apple flexes its privacy muscles. It, you know, it's, it's an analysis of the various things that happen to WWDC. Um, and then an interesting story that I didn't know this was a thing, but The Atlantic is reporting on it. Um, the title they have is When Grown-Ups Get Caught in a Teen's Airdrop Crossfire. Apparently, <laughs> spamming people with airdrop force them to see things they don't want to see is apparently a thing among teenagers. So it's a timely reminder that you should really have your airdrop settings to off or my contacts only. Because otherwise, if you end up too close to a bunch of teens, you may find yourself looking at things you don't want to. You know, it's that's funny. At uh, WWDC, I turned on airdrop to send something to Gene McDonald, and it was hilarious how many things I saw. And I just felt like going, ping, 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 ping. It was like a stupid picture of something I was going to send. I just thought it'd be funny. <laughs> yeah, well, imagine teenagers with the same power. <laughs> yes, because I have self-control. Yeah. And then the last one I have a star next to here is particularly of interest to Americans. The title, it's a New York Times opinion piece, but the title is, I am a judge. Here's how surveillance is changing our legal system. Ugh. I don't want to it, read that. Well, you, I think you do, actually, because no, he I explains... I'm much happier not knowing things. Okay. <laughs> okay, fair enough. He sort of explains why it's important that people start to think about this, because basically the reality has gotten ahead of the law. And he sort mm. of lays out what that really means when reality is out of sync. Okay. Anyway, it, it's a good article. Propeller beanie territory. So this is obviously for people who are big into the propeller beanies. Apple's Find My feature uses some very clever cryptography. Really good article from Wired. Wired are really good at these kind of explainers. They do this one very well. Um, It was... This would have been a big story when Apple patched it. So your phone's sensors could be used as an undeletable tracking cookie because every sensor has different noise characteristics and for some reason someone thought it was a good idea to expose these sensors to the web APIs through JavaScript. But anyway, that's all been nipped in the bud. But this would have been an an undeletable fingerprint, but thankfully it's been solved. But if you're curious how it worked, it's kind of fascinating technologically. And then the last one I have a star next to is for people like me who use VI slash Vim on their Linux systems, believe it or not, there's a massive security vulnerability in Vim that's just been patched. So patchy, patchy, patch, patch. And there's other stuff in there too. 
Um, I've added another new section called Suggested Listening. This is oh. for things that are not palate cleansers. They're, you know, they're they're security related, but they're audio instead of reading. So I figure I can't call that suggested reading. So I'm going to call it suggested listening. Uh, the BBC World podcast, 50 Things That Made a Modern Economy, dedicated an entire episode to the like button. It starts off with the history, but then it moves into an extremely good discussion of the implications of that like button following us all over the internet and the privacy yeah, concerns right. that come along with it. And it is one of the most clearly explained and level-headed descriptions of exactly what's going on that I've yet heard. And I just thought definitely worth, definitely have to share that with people. That's kind of nice. I like the idea of a suggested listening. Yeah. And then I have a palate cleanser, which happens to also be listening material this time, but it's nothing to do with security. Not at all. Good. Um, there is currently a podcast series on BBC World called 13 Minutes to the Moon that I've already recommended before, but their fourth episode, their, their most, sorry, their fifth episode is called The Fourth Astronaut. And the fourth astronaut was not a human being. It was their computer. It was oh so revolutionary to an extent that I hadn't realised how how far they had to move things forward to get man to the moon. Absolutely fascinating for nerds like us. I can prove that you're right. Steve told me all about it on the way home from getting coffee this morning. Uh Aha. So he also referred to it as a a really good explanation of how... um, Crazy things like flying to the moon uh, have actually advanced our technology in ways we couldn't have predicted. Yeah, and th- this is a perfect example. And um, remember I told you a couple of weeks ago when I came across her for something else that you should call your next cat Margaret? Yeah. She's interviewed in this episode. We get to hear oh, her no voice. Way. Oh, nice. Nice. So, yeah, as I said, I thoroughly enjoy the episode. I'm enjoying the entire series because I'm a big space nerd. But this particular episode is like space nerdery plus computer nerdery. How can I not love that? (laughs) Sounds like it's right up your alley. Yeah. All right. Well, oh, this is time flew by. We've uh, been at it quite a while, but I really enjoy this. This is great, Bart. As always. Excellent. Well, everyone knows what to do. Until the next time, stay patched so you stay secure. Well, that is going to wind us up for this week. But remember, you guys have assignments. We need some recordings. If you get them done this week, it's real easy to just email them to me at allison at podfee.com. But if you do it later, you're going to need to figure out, you're going to need to find Bart and Alistair's addresses that I told you earlier in the show. They will be in the show notes. They will be in the podcast feed. Get out those microphones, get out your watch, get out your phone, whatever it takes to do a good recording. Think it through and do a recording for us. We could really, really use your help. And uh, don't forget, you can follow me on Twitter at podfeet. And if you want to talk and play around in our communities, we've got a great one over at Facebook, podfeet.com slash Facebook, and another great one at Slack for the people who don't like Facebook. That's podfeet.com slash Slack. And don't forget to become a patron like Tom at podfeet.com slash Patreon. I said it wrong, podfeet.com slash Patreon. There I got it. And if you want to join in the fun of the live show, there will be one more this coming uh, Sunday, but we'll be off for a couple of weeks after that. But for now, head on over to podfeet.com slash live on Sunday nights at 5 p.m. Pacific time and join the friendly and enthusiastic Nocilla Castaways. Thanks for listening and stay subscribed.